welcome back to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. This is episode four. We are happy that you're here. Something a little different today. From time to time, we are going to uh, play some audio that we've recorded at one of our speaking gigs, and then we'd love to get your feedback on it. So every time we do that, uh, it will become two episodes. One is when we uh, play the audio, like this is episode four, and then as we get your feedback, that will form what's going to become episode six, which is a dialogue about this. Yeah, and and I never met Thomas J. Ord before. I'd heard his name around, um, but I found him to be a, a delightful person and was surprised at how much my own sort of theological, uh, spiritual thinking lined up with his, even though we come from two very different places. And that's always a joy to, because it sort of lets me know, oh, maybe you're not crazy, or at least maybe this person's crazy too. (laughs) So let me give you the background on how this came together. Thomas G. Ord is both a friend of mine, and I really love his writing. He's kind of has a background in process thought, so like non-controlling views of God that are non-coercive and and, uh, uh, very much open-ended. And so he gets sometimes called like an open theologian, like the future's undetermined. But mostly his focus is on the, the nature of the love of God. And I just think it's such a refreshing focus that he brings, different than everyone else I've read. Well, and what is at stake here, really? I mean, think about it. I mean, there, there's some folks who are atheists and lots of folks who are agnostics, but uh, uh, many of us have some sort of spiritual beliefs. Um, we're not quite sure how we put them all together. What we, But... Um, there is a narrative out there that says God is just this really mean old man who's out there to punish you and get you if you do the wrong thing. And that is nothing could be farther from the truth, at least from my understanding of who the creator is. And um, what is at stake here really is how we view God mm-hmm. and how we view uh, the creator. Um, and, um, and, and I think that makes a difference on how we act. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, a lot of people think that God's like an angry Santa Claus up in the sky. He's taking down who's naughty and who's nice. And at some point, uh, you're going to pay for that or you'll be handsomely rewarded for uh, how you lived. But that um, that view of God is really, really scary at so many different levels. And so Tom, one of the things he does is he challenges it by saying, You know, if we want to say God's all-knowing or God's all-something, but let's not say God's all-powerful because God's power is the power of love. And so let's say God's all-loving instead of all-powerful. So he gets in a lot of trouble for this. But he put out a book. This is where uh, I come in. He put out a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God. Really great little book. But then I was invited, uh, along with 30 other people, to contribute a chapter of response And that second book, the edited book, is called Uncontrolling Love. My chapter was on uncontrolling church leadership. I think that if you say God is uncontrolling, that the way you participate in your spiritual community, and for me that's a church, should also be uncontrolling. You can't be a controlling uh, person and then somehow 
do a, a bait and switch and try and point people towards an uncontrolling love of God. Now, how dare you, Bo, uh, try to reconcile uh, in some sort of uh, uh, integral way to have integrity between what you believe and how you act? What's wrong with you? That's not the Christianity I've been exposed to. My my academic uh, uh, degree is in practical theology, so I am I'm obsessed with this uh, thing. But you're right; for a lot of people concepts and 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 practices don't always and i've seen that that is uh, pervasive throughout the western worldview and sometime we're going to talk about that i I really think it's an important construct because the western worldview uh understands things in the abstract and indigenous worldview understands things very much in the concrete Mm -hmm. and it's what you do that determines what you believe Mm -hmm. And then in the Western worldview, it's often what you believe. I think, therefore, I am, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, and, and, and then there's a whole lot of time spent justifying why the, the actions don't line up with the belief. Mm-hmm. So good for you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. For you, that means a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're going to hear today is a conversation that happened on, we put together a two-night event. So the first night that Tom uh, was with us, he's from Idaho, and he had come out here to Portland uh, for two nights. The first night, we invited as many contributors to the book as we could get to come. So there were five of us there that night that contributed to the book who were in conversation with Tom. It was really uh, an interesting Fun, I thought a very fun conversation. If you want to hear that first night's conversation, uh, I'll link over to Vermont Hills, which is the name of my church where this was hosted. Their podcast stream, we're going to put night one over at Vermont Hills podcast. Night two was a conversation between uh, Randy and Edith and Thomas J. Ord. And so that's going to be what you're going to listen to today is some highlights, some selections from that And we would love to get your feedback, and uh, we're going to tell you how to do that in a minute, but it's your feedback that will actually become episode six of this, which is episode four. Yeah, and uh, we wouldn't be stretching this thing out if it wasn't so important. I think uh, um, there's a foundational problem with the image of God in this country. Mm. All right. So with that set up, here's how you can uh, contribute and support this podcast and join in the conversation. So there's a Facebook page. Anybody can like that and you can post there and we're going to monitor that and get some direction for uh, episode six. If you want to go to Patreon and look up piecing it all together, we'll link to that as well. If you support us at the $1 a month level, you're going to get access to a private Facebook group, and we'll have conversations there. At the $10 level, you're going to get an email address, and when you write an email to us or send us an audio file, we'll either read or play that as appropriate on future episodes so that your contribution actually really determines the direction of future episodes. And you can uh, email us directly at um, pcnitalltogether at gmail.com, and that's P-E-A-C-I-N-G. Yeah, we've made it a verb. So the last thing is at the $20 level, 
Every other month, you're going to get an invitation to a Zoom conversation um, where your voice will be heard and those will be recorded and those will become podcast episodes. So we're really excited uh, to be unveiling this new conversation and we hope that as you uh, support and contribute, that it really takes on a life of its own and becomes a vibrant conversation so that when we have the name Piecing It All Together, the all together becomes as important as any other element of the conversation, that we are in this together. Sounds great. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy Thomas J. Ord in conversation with Randy and Edith Woodley. Glad you guys are here. You know, maybe it makes sense since uh, some of the folks in the room don't know you guys all that well, and obviously the folks who are going to be listening uh, haven't had a chance to talk to you face-to-face yet. Maybe it would make sense to just kind of get a little bit of your background, where you're at, and what you're doing. How's that for a softball? Hmm, okay. Well, we're parents, grandparents, and farmers. Uh-huh. And that's the most important parts of our life. Very good. Well, <laughs> the most important is he's my best friend. Oh, that's what I say about my wife. Yeah. <laughs> And farmers and parents and also folks coming from a particular perspective on life. Yeah. Tell us a little about that. So I'm a legal descendant of the United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma. And I am a uh, Eastern Shoshonean Choctaw from, uh, I grew up in Wind River Indian Reservation, Wyoming. So um, maybe that gives us a little different perspective. And we're both followers of Jesus um, and, uh, so we've noticed along the way that, uh, Christianity and, uh, what Christianity had to offer to our people, um, wasn't always, uh, really uh, cogent, mm. and that's a really big understatement, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, because I was able to, I was privileged enough to start getting, uh, an education and got a PhD and, uh, MDiv and all those kinds of things um, that are required to sit at the big people's theology table. <laughs> um, that uh, um, you know that uh, the thing that had been left out for so long among our people as uh, Christians came to them was the ability to self-theologize, mm-hmm. and so we sort of major on that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So what? Edith, jump in here first, and then Randy, if you don't mind, kind of come after. What What are some of the ways you think Native peoples um, uh, have thought about God that differ from the ways of, uh, let's say, just Western Christianity? Are there some, what are some differences? Native people don't really think of Christianity. It's, um, it's, they they really have nothing to do with Christianity. It's um, there's just no um, affiliation there, and if it is, it's it's been um, really distorted. There's our um, people. If you know anything about Native peoples, they've they've been through a lot mm-hmm. in the yeah. name of God, <laughs> in the name of Christianity. Um, you know, we were killed. We were torn, our families were torn apart, our um, children were raped, you know, they were abused, and 
they were killed and you know I could just go on yeah. all in the name of Christianity or God and um, so it's for myself it was really hard to understand how um, as a native person that I can because if I was to be a Christian I'd have to give up who I was as a native person mm -hmm. and um, that I did I didn't know nothing about who I was as a native person um, because it was not really talked about yeah, yeah. my father went through um, in Native American boarding schools the Indian oh, boarding school systems okay. and he had nothing to do with Christianity and uh, in fact, he, he, he chased a, a preacher who came to his house one time away with a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it was, that's how I grew up. Yeah. I, um, my mom was a Christian. She uh, gave her life when she was 16, but my grandfather is a Southern Baptist pastor down in Oklahoma, Southeast Oklahoma. And he, so she grew up that way. She's Choctaw. Yeah. And um, they, he gave up his identity as a native person. And so he became this pastor and so he had a family and that's their whole life became very Christian. But you didn't give up your identity as a native mm, person. I you, did. You did. Ah, I did. Okay. So but it wasn't for Christianity. Ah. It was for other stuff. Yeah. Um, personal history stuff, my own family issues. But today, you consider yourself Native American. Yes. And a Christian. No. No. Ah, I didn't realize that. <laughs> no, I'm a follower of Jesus. Ah, okay. We so. could go into the distinctions there, and I think I might know what you would say, but I appreciate you putting that on the table. So when you say you're a follower of Jesus, um, how does that mesh or not mesh with your Native ways? Um, it meshes because our Native people were very spiritual. We're yeah. spiritual people. And, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, they're praying to the sun, or they pray to trees or the rocks, or, mm -hmm. you know, they worship this, they worship that. They don't really. If you understood those people, yeah. those Native peoples, different all over the uh, the continent, they have a belief in who the creator is, yeah. the creator God. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to, to, to talk some more about. And let me go to you, Randy. I mean, when you think about, this is obvious, we're going to talk in generalities. I'm sure there's many ways to think about this creator God that either has mentioned. But when you think about the general native view of God, how does that differ or how is it similar to a western view of God? Oh, very different. Um, I, I think the first moral dilemma uh, with the uh, Puritans, especially when they came here, was that the uh, the Indians were more Christian than the, and not knowing who Jesus was, than, than the <laughs> Puritans who claimed to know Jesus. Um, and uh, I think that caused them a great deal of consternation um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, and I'm not trying to create some kind of a, 
idea that Native people are perfect or something like that, but very spiritual. And I think having a sort of a a holistic view of reality. Hmm. And uh, there are a number of things, I think, that are now endemic to the Western worldview, uh, which is adopted by the church. Of course, mm-hmm. they went hand in hand for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually work against everything that Jesus taught. So the dualisms, the individualism, the extrinsic categorization, mm-hmm. um, you know, the competition-based sort of idea. All of those things, I think, work against the shalom kingdom that Jesus was preaching. Mm-hmm. And so. We have a situation now uh, that's really coming to a head in our generation, I think, and it's good that it is, where um, people who want to follow Jesus are finding that outside of Christianity. Um, and, um, and I think it's because this is really the great age of deconstruction. Mm. Uh, we're deconstructing worldviews. Our students are deconstructing their worldviews. And in that, they're able to say, those things that, that I've sort of acquired via just a, a Western European worldview that really comes, a lot, most of it comes from Greece, you know, originally ancient Greece. But um, those things are things that I can shed from a worldview and begin to adopt uh, a more either, if they're looking at Jesus, a more um, uh, uh, worldview that reflects Jesus, or if they're looking to indigenous people, a more indigenous worldview. Um, but, in, in you know, there's the, the whole move back to the Celtic spirituality. And right. I think it's all part of the same thing. And people are saying the Christianity that we were given is, is not the kind that Jesus taught. And I don't know how to get out of it. But uh, and I think deconstructing that worldview is the first step to getting out of that. Yeah, so. when you start to, I'll say, reconstruct or construct an, an alternative worldview... Um, obviously, you guys are followers of Jesus. You think that's at the heart of it. But um, what other aspects are part of that worldview? I mean, what you've mentioned overcoming dualisms and that sort of stuff. As you think about ways of living, ways of thinking, ways of being in the world, what's a part of that alternative reality that you would like to see become real today? Well, it's a difficult question for especially urban dwellers, but I think. Um, getting close to the earth again has sort of got to be primary. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's God's first book, right? Yeah. So is creation. And uh, there's so much that we can learn uh, through creation. Um, and that's a really, that's a big thing. I mean, that's a big step for totally a lot agree. of people. Yeah. Um, but some of the people who've been farmers all their life, they understand that a bit, right? Um, indigenous peoples from anywhere understand that this, that there is a creation-centered spirituality that's very different than sort of the Christ, Western Christian spirituality, yeah. so, or Edith, spiritualities, I should say. Yeah. yeah. Edith, you and Randy and others, uh, I mean, you're, you live on a little farm right now. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that inform the way you think about this spirituality, this way of living like Jesus that you're intending to do? Creation is, is, is a beautiful thing. Mm. My favorite time of the year is the fall, but springtime is what you call new life mm-hmm. on a farm. And then um, as you're planting seeds and you're watching little things grow mm-hmm. and all these things come up out of the earth, I mean, it's, that's life. Yeah. But really what's life is once you get your hands down into the dirt, 
I mean, literally put your hands down into that dirt and it's, it's uh, may kind of warm on top, but then as you get deeper, it's cool and it's soft and, mm-hmm. it, and it feels fresh. Mm-hmm. And then you run into worms. And then there's Which billions. Which is a good thing. Yeah, it's exactly. a good thing. On a farm, you want lots of worms. Yeah. Um, but then you run into all these different microorganisms that are healthy. Mm. And that is creation. And that's, a, to me, that's my own thoughts, is that's at the heart of who Jesus is. Yeah. Because Jesus is love. Yeah. And... He, he talks about um, all the stuff like um, loving your neighbors and the orphans and the widows and people who are not like you. Mm. And it's and that's life, yeah. is that love. And as you get in there and it's you, to me it's just love, that dirt, those yeah. worms and those watching those plants, and it's all life. That's so, so different from at least one strand or one story or one version of Christianity, which said that long ago, people sinned. The whole world is now totally depraved, not just people, but Mm -hmm. the earth as well. And we need to say yes, to commit to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior so we can get out of here as quick as possible. Uh, you're, the way you talk about the earth sounds like you love it an awful lot, and God loves it too. Right. Well, it is. I mean, it's it's. Yeah. And you don't create something and not love it, right? And so you, you, I mean, I do beadwork, and there's pieces that I don't like, and so I get rid of them. But I think to myself, as the earth was being created and all that was in it, it all came from love, and it all came mm-hmm. from what. I could just imagine what he was thinking mm-hmm. as he was creating everything. Yeah. And we and we have different creation stories. Each tribe has different creation stories. And as I listen to these different creation stories, it's like they all come to the same thing as love. Yeah. We need more of that in, in traditional Christian creation stories. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it's been revolving more around power and, and God creating something out of nothing. And I've Anyways, I won't go there tonight. I could talk a long time on that. <laughs> and, and, you know, my one of my great concerns is what what people who read the Bible and believe the Bible uh, do with their theology when Jesus is named as the Creator. Mm-hmm. You know, in five places in Scripture, it names Jesus as the Creator. You know, yeah. for John one is one of the most poignant. You know, uh, and uh, he had everything that was made; nothing was made. That was made without him, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, so, so those writers didn't know what to do with Jesus, and so they, many of them, uh, Hebrews, um, you know, uh, Corinthians, um, uh, Colossians, uh, John, um, they assigned him as the Creator, mm-hmm. and that's not a, you know, I, I always tell people, well, we've been praying to Creator for, you know, tens of thousands of years. Who yeah. have we been praying to? Mm-hmm. We've been praying to Jesus, you yeah. know, so, yeah, it, it's not like the Europeans, you know, brought Jesus with them. I have a, a friend, Robert Francis, who says Columbus wouldn't, have, or Jesus wouldn't have rode with a guy like Columbus. <laughs> uh, I love it. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like, um, 
you know, for where we're at now as, as native, I think, theologians is, is at the place where it's like, well, okay, I, I don't, like some of my friends say, you know, you know, wish the white man would all go back to Europe and they should have never came here and, you know, but I'm like, no, you know, I, I think that they came here and what they were supposed to do was listen mm-hmm. because Jesus was here active and working. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's taken a little over 500 years before people start listening, but, you know, maybe we're getting there. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah. You know, in our conversations earlier, um, Randy, you're talking some about your emphasis upon a God of empathy, vulnerability. And, um, and how that might have some similarities with what I mentioned earlier when I was talking um, about uncontrolling love. What, what is this turn toward vulnerability in God that you find to be not only attractive, but so truthful? Well, uh, I think just to create an earth and put people on is a very vulnerable act, right? Yeah. But certainly if you just you know jump to the incarnation and life and ministry and, and death of, and of Jesus and everything about Jesus that we can read about and know about is, is about him being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is teaching us who God is through his vulnerable acts. Um, and it, it seems to me like when you talk about um, uncontrolling love or maybe even the more specific, I think, term you use, the essential kenosis, is right. that, the, yeah. That, yeah. That, that that lines up with that and says that, mm-hmm. uh, that um, God is vulnerable, the Godhead or Trinity, if you will, or is a community of vulnerability that defer to and prefer one another, mm-hmm. and that is the DNA set in motion for the entire creation, including the church. And so if we are going to reflect who God is, then we have to use what I would say is God's, one of God's at least, I'm not going to try and claim to know this, but mm-hmm. overriding sort of characteristics is, is this vulnerability. Yeah. And so I think we are, when we are most vulnerable, we are at our most spiritual times. Yeah, I love that. I think God is essentially vulnerable, so there I'll go, go there. <laughs> yeah. It works. Yeah, I mean, when I think about um, this vulnerable God who's involved, um, and I think about First Nations people, Native people, Indigenous people all over the world, not just mm-hmm. on this particular continent, I think about the way folks have justified certain forms of power, rule, and government in the name of God. Um, and it seems to me like it's linked to a way of thinking about God's power as overpowering rather than vulnerability. That that justifying act is really interesting. Um, I think, um, especially Americans, sort of the history of America is whenever America does wrong, it has to justify it, right? Mm -hmm. And I I don't know how much of that is tied into the theology, but um, it's sort of like uh, in, in our uh, in the community, when you do wrong, you did wrong. There's, there's no trying to. It's like you know, you face up to what you did, and it was wrong, and you admit it. Yeah. There's no trying to say, well, you know, we need to justify it somehow. But it's a, it seems to be a, a really uh, embedded characteristic, especially in the American psyche, to justify. And much of theology is that way. We have to justify why God uses control, you know. Yeah, we have yeah. to, and that's what a lot of our theology is, is really based on these control factors, which 
as I mentioned, a bunch of the things that the worldview that leads to that controlling. So control ends up being the opposite of vulnerability. Mm. So if we're going to have a gospel that reflects Jesus, a gospel that, that reflects God, it has to be one that is free of control. Yeah, yeah. What I hear over and over again are people, especially Christians, who want to make the conversation about authority. What's your authority? Who's your authority? Is the Bible your authority? Is God the authority? Or the authoritative leaders? This person is over you in the system. You're, he's or almost he always he is your authority. God put him in place. Now you should follow him. Yeah, and and the the problem there is this hierarchical worldview, right? right. So um, I, I don't think Jesus taught that. I, I think he acknowledged that it exists, and he said, "This is the way the Gentiles do. Don't be like them. You know, don't <laughs> yeah. rule over other people." So, yeah, yeah. So in in native cultures, what are some of the ways? And I'll direct this to Edith. What are some of the ways in which um, that hierarchy is overcome, or at least uh, what ways of living tries to get beyond a kind of power structure system in terms of the group, the way of living on the right. land, etc.? Um, it's community. Hmm. Um, our native peoples, they're, they're community people. And a um, long time ago, if they, I mean, it's not like, okay, because this person is a chief, they can say, we're going to go to war. Mm -hmm. No. They took it to it's the community. It's not like the president. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we said, Bro said we weren't going there tonight. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's a community thing. Mm -hmm. It's not something that one or two people can decide for the whole people. Mm -hmm. And so... I was just going to say, it's like Acts 15. You know, they all met, taught, and then it says the whole church decided. Right. And that's the way the communities are. And so um, that's just one example of how that's done. And, and it's not just the men either. It's women are involved. And, and so it's, it's a group thing. This yeah. is powerful stuff, and I'm totally on board with it, but I'm going to flip it around. What about typical native peoples, cultures, are you wishing would be different? What changes would you like to see? Well, lots. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you said at the beginning you're not going to try to paint native peoples as having everything figured out, and, yeah. and I think that's really wise. Yeah. What are some things you'd like to see changed? Well, um, I think, uh, you know, that we have, especially in our tribal governments, uh, become very assimilated. Um, and the more Western we get, the worse shape we get into. Mm. I think we need to go back to more traditional forms of governance. Um, we also have, you know, the highest uh, maladies in terms of statistics in the, in the country, you know, highest suicides and teenage pregnancies and yeah. alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera. And which is all, you know, what I call post-colonial stress syndrome. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> and especially at, at this generation attributed to the boarding schools, so it's really post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, and um, so boarding schools, and just in case any of the listeners don't know, for uh, close to 100 years, um, and it was the, really the idea of church and government together um, basically kidnapped and forced our children uh, 
to for over five generations to attend boarding schools away from everything, ripped them away from their parents, kept them there. And at those boarding schools, their culture was beaten out of them, tortured out of them. They were often raped, both uh, boys and girls, creating all these uh, dysfunctions and sexual taboos that we used to have now are all broken down. Um, so it's a, the, a lot of this um, is, is because of, um, not just because of the loss of land, but the loss of family and the, and the loss of our religion as well, which our, which our spirituality is based upon often. But So... Um, uh, so yeah, I've forgotten the question. About, I, get, I get upset talking about boarding schools. So. Are we saying? What, are we saying what? What needs you think needs to change? Oh, okay. So so we need to heal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think we're going to heal. Uh, the more we become assimilated, the the worse we get. Um, we've got to go back to more traditional ways of being and realize that those were the things that that got us through several and you know dozens of millenniums. Um, is to to go back to our traditional ways, um, much of our traditional ways, but you know, in the church especially, that's anathema. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, still the majority of native churches don't have anything to do with native culture. Um, you know, um, and if you put a blindfold on, you wouldn't know that they were they were native people instead of white people, except for they sing so bad. Those, those hymns, you know, we're singing those crazy hymns. I know, you know, when, when a lot of the, the Western people hear our songs, they go, oh, it's really eerie, weird music. It goes up and down. And, you know, and, and I remember because we had a church that had a lot of traditional people and, and they would hear the hymns and they'd go, oh, this sounds really eerie. All this going up and down and all this weird stuff. You know? I love it. You know, I, when I'm in Canada hanging out there with my friends, they talk a lot about what the Canadian government is trying to do in terms of giving some sort of reparations to the peoples there who went through incredibly horrible boarding school situations. Yeah, same thing as here. Yeah. Have you ever thought about what that might look like in the U.S. of A.? Yeah, sure. What do you think it, it ought to be? Well... Uh, the, the problem with the TRC, and they're, they're starting to realize it, is that um, uh, there's not a whole lot um, that's happening as a result of it. It has to include some kinds of restitution. And tell us the TRC. Truth and Reconciliation uh, co- Committee? Council? Commission. Commission. There we yeah. go. Um, and, um, you know, repentance without restitution is not biblical, first of all, so Christians shouldn't be in favor of it. Um, and, uh, and it's just not right to have lost so much at the hands of people who used power in such evil ways yeah. and then to not even say, and we want to find ways to make restitution. Yeah. So um, if we're just going to have a sorry commission, then, you know, I'm not for it. But yeah. uh, if we actually, and I think there are actually are ways, um, lots of ways, and I've got, this is one of my books that's been burning in me for about 10 years. <laughs> Uh, you know, restoring America's lost honor through her host people. Um, that there are ways that we can go about um, making this happen, um, but uh, you know, uh, it, it just it takes some think. The first thing we should do is um, instead of the uh, Native Americans, we're listed under the Bureau of Interior. Yeah. So um, the Department of Interior. That's all flora and fauna except for native people, right? We should really be, we should be in charge of that, first of all. Um, and, and so that we know how to treat the earth and so things would get, you know, the environment might get cleaned up. 
but um, uh, but we should be under the, uh, the the State Department, so having our own ambassadors and that sort of thing, um, and treated as other people around the world are treated yeah. that deal with the United States. So. Yeah. Some of what you said, Randy and Edith, make me think that at least one way to a person could interpret it is that you want to be isolationists. You want to withdraw from the culture, to do your own thing, to be Amish. <laughs> um, would that be a fair representation of what you guys are saying? Or are you trying to propose something that's more integrative, but also obviously radically different? It's a combination of both for me. It's, it's not, it, we're not different. You know, we have the same needs as everybody else does. And it's just that we've been ignored. You know, we, we our native peoples are, um, we're called the uh, forgotten generation. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, we're the invisible generation, that's what it is. And it's, we, when, you know, when uh, politicians get up and speak and they go, oh, this, this group, this group, this group, but they never mention Native Americans. Except for Obama. And, yeah, except for Obama. <laughs> but, but even then, it's just, we're invisible. We've always been invisible. And, you know, we would like to be visible for change <laughs> and be recognized that, hey, these are people like us. And um, they were treated very badly. And um, it's just a part. Um, but also it's like, oh, got to have respect for them and their spiritual ways also. Mm -hmm. Because... You know, we may not go with that spiritual direction, but, you know, we like ours, but let them have theirs and not criticize them as, oh, that's ooh, eerie stuff or that's new agey type stuff. We just want to be a part of civilization and a part of it, but still be able to do what we like to do. Well, diversity has always been a value among, that I can tell among traditional Native people. And so, um, uh, so, it, and I think homogeneity is perhaps um, a luxury that um, we get to have sometimes because it makes us feel safe, it reinforces our identity, um, we don't have to worry about what are they thinking about us now, we can just be ourselves. And so homogeneity is a, you know, it's a, it can be a, a, a nice, safe place to be. But I don't think we, any of us were created to live in that world of homogeneity. Mm. And, um, and because of that, uh, I think our Native people, one of the values would be, yes, we want our time to develop our spirituality, to be who we are, etc. We didn't ask to be assimilated. We'd like to have, use that choice and assimilate at our own speed if we choose to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time... Um, I think uh, would would never, and I, I think history sort of proves as well that we've always opened our doors and opened um, uh, our uh, you know our things, our ceremonies, and other things to other people. It's just like I've been running a sweat lodge for 28 years, um, and one of the things I was told when I was taught was that anybody is welcome in here. It doesn't matter what color they are, it doesn't matter what gender they are. They're everybody is welcome. 
Uh, kind of like, you know, we just don't have a sign out front like a lot of churches says everybody's welcome. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, so no one's ever been turned away, right? So I'm going to have to come years. down and hang out with you, get on the sweat lodge. I'd like to do that. <laughs> everybody's welcome. One last question, and then I think Bo's going to come in here. Um, this is actually a hard question, so maybe it's not the best one to end on, but i got to ask it anyway. Um, the diversity thing that both of you mentioned, I think we live in an age in which more and more people are recognizing the value of diversity. But, of course, sometimes diverse things clash. If part of Native American spirituality, Native people's American, uh, spirituality, is caring for the earth, being close to the earth, and someone else has a spirituality of conquering the earth, then obviously we've got a conflict there. I mean, do you have any insights for us on how we can... <laughs> it seems to me those two spiritualities are present today. One of them's not called a spirituality, but it ends up being so, that we're going to conquer, we're going to take up more land, we're going to... Urban sprawl is going to continue, there's going to be less and less you know, wild places. Right. Um, so, yeah, and, uh, you know, again, it's back to that worldview. When you have a worldview that's, that, that is based on those things that lead into that conquering attitude, yeah. um, you're going to have that happen. But I think just like we wouldn't let men conquer women or white people conquer black people, we can't let any human being conquer the earth. We need to stop nice. that. Yeah. The earth uh, is among the most marginalized and the most disenfranchised uh, right now. And, and the earth, uh, in my opinion, uh, my understanding, is actually beginning to fight back. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, some of it's a, a natural and logical result of what's happened. Um, uh, and so things are going awry. But some of it is the, the earth is just saying, if, if you're going to try and destroy me, I'm going to destroy you first. <laughs> and I guess who's going to win? Yeah. So... So my awkward question had an awesome answer and nice ending. So let's thank these folks and we'll go to Q&A.